A surprising stock move flying under the radar today, Broadcom is now one of the biggest tech companies in the world. The story behind its CEO, the strategy, and what some are now calling the Berkshire of tech. It's Wednesday, December 13th. Welcome to the Tech Check Podcast. I am Deirdre Bosa. And I'm Mark Gilbert. Today, a stock that keeps hitting all-time highs. It is Broadcom, ticker AVGO. Shares have doubled this year, D. It's now number 11 on the list of largest companies in the U.S. by market cap. It's bigger than Oracle, Adobe, AMD, and it sort of exploded in the last quarter. And it's now the second largest listed chip company. So if you think that this is sort of the current most exciting way to invest in the generative AI shift, Broadcom is up there. I mean, and we'll talk about maybe the perhaps compelling reason it could be part of that shift. But we focused a lot this year on NVIDIA, not just us, everyone, the well, the street analysts, um, even the wider media. NVIDIA has sort of got all of the market attention for good reason. It's just had an absolute blowout year, and it's been at the center of this generative AI conversation. Um, but the rise of Broadcom and Hoctan, I would argue it is just as interesting, which is why we wanted to do the story today. Um, the hook is sort of, it's just had this massive performance this quarter, and investors have really rotated out of that name, NVIDIA, which they've we've been talking about all year, and into Broadcom, also known as AVGO. So over the last month, Gilbert, NVIDIA is down a percent, Broadcom is up 15%, and that in itself tells a story. And I think it's worth taking a step back before we talk about this quarter to go back to how we got here. This is basically a roll-up. I was struck by how far it's come. This was a company that went public in 2009 with the name of Vago and a market cap of $3.5 billion dollars. Um, so, you know, relatively small. It was actually originally uh, a, a small chips business within Hewlett Packard. Uh, it was bought by private equity and then spun out um, and at the outset declared that its strategy was going to be deals, M&A. And certainly over the last decade plus, Hoctan has run true to that. So he um, is the CEO. He's run the company for two decades. He's from South from Southeast Asia, and he has just been incredibly acquisitive, leading the largest merger of chip makers ever in 2015. That's how it took up the name Broadcom, um, merging with AV Avago. Is that how I say it, Gilbert? Avago? Yeah, Avago. And it still has that ticker, AVGO. And then other acquisitions, you know, let it beyond semis into software, security, and you know, most notably recently, the cloud with VMware. And he even had his sights set on Qualcomm in 2018, which is just such a massive name in the chip making space. I had to like read this twice because it wasn't even that long ago. It was in 2018. And it was a deal valued at more than $100 billion. So just hugely sort of aggressive and ambitious by Hawk Tan um, to take over again, like Qualcomm is such an American, is such an important American company as well. And he ultimately had to withdraw. That was part of the story too. Someone coming in who was seen as sort of an outsider during the Trump administration, which blocked this deal. And then he eventually withdrew it. So it proved to be a little too ambitious, but he's made many, many other massive deals. We should mention, because you brought it up, the geopolitics of this story as well. The company was based in Singapore for almost all of its corporate history, which gave it a very low tax rate um, and sort of allowed it to... Uh, you know, be more profitable than its peers. And I think that also kept it out of the discussion of top 
tech companies in the Valley, right? Uh, and then the Trump administration obviously blocked the Qualcomm deal. It was amidst the the growing fight with China, uh, and it was based in in Singapore. So it was sort of blocked on on CFIUS grounds because it was a foreign company. The company has since relocated its legal domic- domicile back to the U.S. to California. Um, little side tangent there, but but that was sort of Great some of the geopolitics tangent. involved. No, I think I think that that helps tell the Hawk Tan story, right? Because he has made the second most valuable chip company in the world. And he's not an American. And we know that chips are such a delicate industry, right? Who owns it? Who's creating it? And Hawk Tan ha- has acquired many American companies and really moved to put himself in his headquarters here in the United States. Brings up some interesting questions. We think about TikTok, we think about Xi'an, right? Which has made a point to move its headquarters to Singapore so that it's not seen as Chinese and it has this huge American business. Okay, tangent on your tangent. Let's get back to Hak Tan. Born specifically in Malaysia and Southeast Asia, he got a scholarship to go to MIT and he got an MBA from Harvard Business School. So he certainly does have, you know, somewhat deep roots here. He himself, he's such a fascinating business figure because he's known as this ruthless cost cutter. When he acquires a company, he just gets in and he slashes, mostly in you know marketing and advertising. And he's also known to be opportunistic in raising prices where he can. So customers of a company that he's acquiring the first reaction, if you go back and look, they're not super pleased because they see Hawk Tan coming in, they think, oh, our prices are going to be raised for this product that we're already paying for. And this reputation is so much entrenched that in a blog post outlining his ambition to buy VMware when he still had to convince regulators, um, he mentioned pricing, not one, not two, not three, four times, explicitly committing to not increasing them. Right. And so what he has sort of created over the years of these, this deal making of this sort of decade plus of, of um, you know, of buying smaller and honestly, very large chip companies is this conglomerate of very profitable semi and software companies, incre- increasingly D, that have some sort of some sort of AI tie in, right? Right. So it works with Google on its custom AI chips, TPUs. And if you think that you're going to see more of these massive tech companies create their own silicon in-house, that's an opportunity for Broadcom to work with them. And what it's called is an AI accelerator business. And that's sort of where Broadcom plays. It's very different than, say, in NVIDIA, which is creating the GPUs. But in a sense, it's it's creating this ecosystem by bringing in software and security. Um, but Bank of America, in a note, said that that business that is now just at its early stages and growing at Broadcom, it believes it could be worth as much as $400 billion in the long term. I noticed this number, Gilbert, because it was only last week when AMD, another chip maker in a distant third place, I think, to Broadcom, said that its total addressable market, also known as a TAM, could reach $400 billion. And the market kind of bid up AMD on that news. It was a day late, a day delayed, but it gave its stock sort of a bit of a catalyst. I was surprised at how much bigger... Uh, Broadcom is than than AMD and how much it, and how it trades at a, at a much lower valuation. Yeah, and we were doing that comparison on TV today, and it's a little wonky, but we look at something called price to earnings ratio, and it's how the market values its its future profitability. And Broadcom, I think, in one instance too, is even below an in Intel. Um, so this is a stock that you know if you think that this is a collection of profitable businesses as well. It could be an interesting opportunity. Um, B of A this morning kind of summed it up in, a, in an interesting way. They said, 
AVGO, Broadcom, over the past decade has transformed into the Berkshire of tech, a conglomerate premium run by a management team that are among the best capital allocators ever in TMT, the internet sector. Um, Berkshire Hathaway, of course, is um, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's firm that they have turned into a conglomerate, picking up insurance companies, stakes in banks, Apple notably, just to create so much value. And actually Berkshire Hathaway, its, it's A shares are higher than uh, Broadcom. So it is in the top 10 of largest listed companies by market cap. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned that uh, that term, the Berkshire of, t- of tech, a conglomerate premium, because generally the market places a discount on conglomerates. It doesn't like mm-hmm. um, conglomerates, right? If, if you did a sum of the parts analysis, often the sum of the parts add up to more than um, than what you get as a conglomerate because it likes the clarity of the different pieces. The exception to that um, is often considered a company like Berkshire where people pay for um you know, Warren Buffett's uh, capital, you know, potential capital allocation power. I will say that that has shifted recently with Berkshire Hathaway. If you just add up its its operating businesses, you know, investors are, are um, you know, increasingly undervaluing Berkshire Hathaway's, uh, uh, you know, like stock portfolio and cash position. But regardless, um, you know, it, it's high praise to give to give a stock the the, the Berkshire of tech, Hocktan being the Warren Buffett of, of tech. It can also be seen as a curse. We should we should mention that because anything that's been called the Berkshire of anything or the Warren Buffett of anything has to live up to those extremely high expectations. It's like the Fortune thirty under thirty. Um, well, I'm it, thinking it can the, sometimes, yeah. You know, the, right as Hock Tan made the the big um, Broadcom acquisition, uh, Valiant Pharmaceuticals, and I wonder if our listeners will remember that story. But Valiant was a uh, was a roll up, a pharmaceutical roll up. And that was also called like a mini Berkshire Hathaway at the time and ended up being a, a sort of catastrophic failure. They were buying growth and then it all sort of fell apart. I'm you, we, We've mentioned some of the other ones, right? Like SoftBank, Masasan. Yes, that was, that was the one yeah. <laughs> that comes to mind. I, I can't remember if he was called that or he called himself that, <laughs> which both <laughs> are entirely possible. But again, this idea that he was going to buy stakes in all of these different companies, this was different in the private market at the earlier stages of these companies' lives and create synergies between them, right? They would all sort of create this amazing ecosystem that would help each other grow. And of course, that that has not yet happened. And he's had sort of egg on his face with investments like WeWork. Um, but Hawk Tan, I mean, it, he's he's just flown under the radar and he's picked up these companies. He's integrated them very well and culminated now to Broadcom being sort of this exciting chips pick as we head into 2024. Yeah, I would say maybe the comparison to to uh, Warren Buffett is that he has not done it as loudly as you know Masasan trying to get attention yeah. for his uh, investments or Valiant or um, you know or Bill Ackman, someone like that who has tried to sort of proclaim themselves the the next Warren Buffett. You know, despite the fact that that the stock has doubled this year, still as you were talking about price to equity, still less expensive on an earnings basis than the other two high flyers, AMD and Nvidia. It's also significantly less than. Arm Holdings, which is a recent IPO. And it's good here too. We kind of, we went over this really quickly because we didn't want to get too technical, but AMD is doing something very different. They're trying to create sort of a competitor to NVIDIA chips, the GPUs, whereas Broadcom would serve sort of the broader ecosystem. So you have to figure how Wall Street values that. So important to keep in mind, but just the story of Broadcom 
has been interesting. And as we head into the end of the year, worth worth visiting. Worth the other visiting, side of the market. looking ahead to, to next year. The other side of the market, you were going to say, has been we've been talking about a stock that's done well this year. The other part of the market that, that we haven't talked about a lot recently is the unpro- unprofitable side of the market that we used to talk about so much. Um, we used to call them growth stocks or de- speculative tech. They're also the, the pandemic mountain stocks, right? Their stock yes. charts just went up, peaked usually at the end of 2021 and then kind of came crashing down. But this year, and we don't talk a lot about their comeback because still, you know, most cases lower than those pandemic highs. But what's interesting is that their fundamentals over the last year and a half, again, sort of under the radar, quietly have become better and better. And part of the reason for that comeback, it's not just this interest rate environment, right? The market looking ahead to interest rate cuts next year. We just got that Fed decision, Fed meeting as well. It's that the interest rate environment, higher rates force them to improve their balance sheets and have better fundamentals. Right. So let's talk about a couple examples. We, we picked out uh, Unity, Wix, Zillow, Palantir, and Pinterest, right? These are uh, smaller, more growth-oriented tech stocks. And because of the interest rate environment, because of the Fed, because of how... you know. You know, we used to call these stocks, by the way, I just realized Kathy Wood stocks. Yes. Because, but be, anyway, because of the interest rate environment, because of the Fed, because of how investors changed their expectations for profitability, these companies fundamentally changed their business models. And the whole idea here is that growth and profitability, they have higher growth. So that pushes profitability out to the future. So investors aren't going to reap the rewards of that until later. And when interest rates are higher, the cost of capital is higher. They're less willing to wait when they can earn better yield or better return right now. So that's just a bit of background. Um, but these own com- these companies, they've gone through their own year or years of efficiency, and they've come out now with leaner workforces, cost cuts, and public commitments to be more disciplined. So as a result, they've seen step-ups in free cash flow margins. Free cash flow is the amount of money and cash that the businesses generate. Right. And Bank of America took a look at Wall Street expectations for free cash flow as a percentage of revenue margins. And it tells us that analysts are expecting major expansions at these companies over the next few years. So Unity, which is a software company, serves gaming, um, going from about 10% this year to double that next year. Wix, uh, an e-commerce platform, similar story, a less dramatic step up, but expansion nonetheless for Zillow, Pins, and Palantir reaching you know mid-20s to 30s in, in 2025. Take these, though, with a grain of salt. <laughs> these are analyst estimates. Analysts have famously sort of gotten this wrong in the past, and even B of A in this note says that you know they're wary or they're skeptical about hockey stick-like inflections. That's a chart that kind of is trudging along for a little bit and then shoots up to the side like a hockey stick if you're le- no if you're a right hand shot <laughs> i had to add <laughs> that in <laughs> um so analysts are expecting this this major expansion um it doesn't always happen that way and then the other thing i would say though is that when you look at free cash flow there's even ways that you can manipulate this a little bit like you can have really high stock based compensation which could make your free cash flow look a little better than it is. But still, it's just this idea of these smaller tech companies against a different rate backdrop, if we get it next year, being better positioned than they have been in the last year. I'm always obsessed with these stories where, you know, usually you think about, uh, you know, um, real real life economic activity affecting price. 
And I'm always interested in the stories where it flows the other way, right? Where the tail sort of wags the dog and how mm-hmm. where price, right? These these stocks were punished and the prices went down. And so they changed their real life economic activity to be um, you know, more basically more attractive to investors and they cut costs. It reminds me of the story we did earlier this year that uh NVIDIA uh, as it was getting more expensive on an absolute basis and the stock was marching, marching higher, actually it was getting cheaper based off of next year's earnings because the earnings were, were increasing faster than the stock was increasing. Right. It's it's the ripples of all of these different financial metrics and, and especially it all comes down to interest rates. So um, we'll see. We'll, we'll continue to follow this and I hope this episode wasn't too wonky, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it tells it tells you how these things work and we hope you'll join us tomorrow.